1: Hey, welcome to another episode of Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya. Please subscribe. Just hit that button. You don't want to miss a single episode. And today's is special. Peter Schweitzer is an investigative journalist. He is a researcher extraordinaire. And I've been reading Red Handed, his most recent book. And it's very timely to talk about, particularly at this moment in time. He talks about Dianne Feinstein and her entanglements with China. John Boehner, his entanglements with China. And of course, the Biden family profiting from China. This stuff should matter to everyone in America because China is a hostile actor. They don't like us. They pretend to. They just want access to us and to our intelligence and to our technology and to our academia and to a, a lot of stuff. And this is why people are concerned about TikTok, and this is why people are concerned about what's going on with Taiwan and China. It's all simpler than you think, but terrifying as hell. And Peter Schweitzer is a great person to talk to about this. He has done extensive research into the relationships between the Chinese government, the CCP, and elites in Washington, D.C. And you need to know this stuff. So maybe you'll want to buy his book after this. Maybe not, but you'll get a damn good idea of what he does and what he writes about and what the hell is going on in Washington, D.C. You may think our politicians have your best interests at heart. Have you seen their homes? Have you seen their gated mansions? Are you sure that they have your best interests at heart? We're going to find out a lot more from the great Peter Schweitzer. He is next. Peter Schweitzer, it's an honor to have you with us. Thanks for being here. Um, you've written so much and it's required so much research. What is your key to success on research? How, Like when people read these books and the, the footnotes are numerous, how do you keep it all on track as you're approaching a project?
2: That's a great question, Michelle. I mean, honestly, I think my work reveals the fact that I i really, the writing part to me is an afterthought. I love research. And if I could make a living just researching and not having to write anything, I would do it. I, I love the hunt. I love the research approach. Um, I'm very blessed in that I started doing this by myself. I've now got an organization called the Government Accountability Institute, and I have researchers that help me. So it's really kind of a team effort. And the key challenge, I think, uh, that people overlook sometimes, Michelle, in today's world is when I started out doing this, I'm 58 years old, before the Internet, the biggest challenge you had was finding information. Mm-hmm. The challenge today is there's too much information. It's trying to sift through and find out what really is relevant, what's accurate and what's real. So we spend a lot of our time gathering data from like, you know, uh, uh, corporate uh, records in China, for example, or financial disclosures, and then trying to collate that and collect that. And that's my favorite part. And by far in the process of thinking of a book idea and actually writing the book the research takes the longest uh, of all of that and i like it well
1: that. that became really evident really quickly to me as i was reading red handed and I, I you know th- there's so much about this look i've i've been trying to tell people for 5 years or so now here stop buying stuff that's made in china let's we've got to disentangle from china china's our biggest threat china this china that and I think a lot of people sort of going, oh, you're kind of obsessed about that. Well, yeah, because I'm worried about the future of my country. but in in yeah. reading your book, what what is fascinating is the way that our political elites deal with China. And I, I want to read this paragraph. Some prominent figures will point to a negative statement they have made about the Beijing regime as evidence that they are tough on China. But this is largely a diversion. To be clear. Beijing does not require American collaborators to toe the party line. Beijing pragmatically accepts some level of public, public criticism from the elites with whom it is working. The idea is known as, quote, "...big help with a little bad mouth," unquote. Tolerating some dissent and criticism from its foreign partners is wise because it maintains their partner's cloak of credibility in the eyes of the American public." As long as these elites deliver on key policies and actions that benefit the regime, some criticism is acceptable. That to me was the, the first. I, that is so important because we do see this tangential yes, we don't disagree with this about China or this about Beijing, but it's tepid and there's a reason. How pervasive is, is this in Congress?
2: Uh, I think it's a huge problem and it's a huge problem on both sides of the aisle. Um, it's, it's really not, Michelle, a red or a blue problem. It's a green problem. It's money. And, and what China has basically said to elected officials and their families is we will create opportunities for you to monetize. Your office effectively we will set you up in businesses. We'll give you consulting agreements, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in an exchange, we're going to forge this kind of bond with you. And the net effect is that those people that engage in this behavior uh, become less fearful of the Beijing regime uh and you know big help with a little ba- bad mouth sort of personifies it i mean we're we're used to thinking about old cold war movies where the soviets you know wanted guys who were you know hook line and sinker um in with the soviet uh, dream uh china's much more pragmatic uh they recognize that it it's not these politicians aren't doing this because they like communism they're doing it because they like the business deals that they can get in china and to maintain their political viability in the United States, they have to be somewhat critical of the regime. China acknowledges that, but if they help them with the big things and those big things, Michelle are access to our capital markets, which means wall street, Uh, it's access to our technology, uh, which they are stealing and they are buying um, all over the country. And the third thing they want is uh, overwhelming access to our market. That is no tariffs or anything else. And if they get those three things, and you criticize them for the treatment of the Uyghurs or for human rights or for Taiwan, they're fine because they're getting the big things that matter most to them. Uh, and that's why we, th- I think, as voters and, and as informed citizens, need to be really sophisticated and looking as to what's actually going There's on.
1: There's no question that China has always had the long game in mind. And uh, America, we're not so um, guilty of that, which we should be. We should have the long game in <laughs> mind. Uh, one of the characters, and it's not a character, but one of the, the 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 role players that we should talk about is Diane Feinstein. She's currently being, you know, talked into resigning. She's given up her post on the Judiciary Committee for the meantime while she's ill. But there's a great move right now to have her resign from her office. But I was, I I, I plead ignorant. I did not know how involved she and her husband were with China. And she is one of those that you talk about, one of those elites that gains a lot by being very cozy with China. Eh, a little criticism here for Tiananmen Square. But if you look at right. her record, it, it, it's quite frightening to me. Why isn't this, um, or is it more well-known than I realize? Or why are people so quick to overlook that about her?
2: Uh, It's a great question. Um, No, I don't think um, you've missed something. I think it's one of those stories that doesn't get reported. And it's partly because it's a very difficult story to uncover. You have to sort of look at this template of her public career going on for decades. And then you have to transpose over that the commercial deals that her husband, uh, Richard Blum, who passed away um, uh, recently, I think it was last year. uh, You have to see, do those kind of interact and interconnect? And they absolutely do. And so So, you know, Diane Feinstein, she's had a long career, San Francisco mayor, U.S. senator, uh, you know, has been married to Richard Blum all along the way. And um, she is she became in her public career increasingly pro Chinese Communist Party, meaning less and less critical of that regime. And at the same time, and I don't think it's coincidence, uh, her husband was brought into deals that the Chinese government was putting together. And that's what people, I think, have to understand, Michelle, is. Doing business in China is not doing like business in the United States or Germany or Japan. In China, any deal that you're involved in of any scale has to include the approval of the Chinese government. And in the case of Diane Feinstein and her husband, Richard Blum, they got approval for some of the first private equity deals involving certain sectors of the Chinese economy. And they were huge winners for that family. And this came about because Dianne Feinstein, as a U.S. senator, as a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, had a long friendship uh, with Jiang Zemin, the uh, the uh, premier of China. And so Jiang Zemin saw her as a friend, saw her as an ally, uh, and he increasingly brought Richard Blum, Dianne Feinstein's husband, into these very, very lucrative deals. And it made the Feinsteins who were rich kind of at the beginning because of Blum's private equity work made them super rich. Uh, And that is overwhelmingly because uh, of what the Chinese government did uh, in these particular cases. So unfortunately, it's not the only case. But it is a very prominent one, and Feinstein, who I think had a reputation with a lot of people uh, of being more uh, statesmanlike, yeah. less, um, you know, let's say uh, buffoonish, <laughs> <laughs> as other political figures that we're used to seeing, um, it just shows that sometimes that that public demeanor doesn't fit. In fact, what's going on behind the scenes? Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up.
1: you detail it so well as you just gave us the nutshell of it there i was recalling all the details from the book that that just i was a little shocked by i have to say i just didn't it took your research and and what you reveal in this book for me to understand just how how connected she was and is and mm-hmm. her husband was to to the chinese communist party which is terrifying to me another player John Boehner, which I did not uh, realize until I read your book. And so, you know, here's the Speaker of the House. And there was this moment in time where the Senate wanted to sort of crack down on the, the currency manipulation going on in China. What happened there?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a, a great example, you know, how the, the sausage gets made in D.C. and it can be complicated. But this is back in the Obama administration. John Boehner, a Republican from Ohio at the time, Speaker of the House. Uh, the Senate is pushing legislation because China is devaluing their currency to make their goods cheaper to capture larger portions of the American market. And in the U.S. Senate, there's a bipartisan effort of both Republicans and Democrats to say, hey. This is not acceptable behavior. Uh, so we want to do something about it. And, and the bill, I think, generally was very responsible. It wasn't extreme. It wasn't crazy. Widespread bipartisan support passes the Senate. It comes to the House. It's unclear what Obama's going to do. Well, John Boehner does something very interesting for a bill that has bipartisan support in the in the, in the Senate. He doesn't hold a vote. He doesn't even allow it to be voted on in the House of Representatives, which he has the power to do. But then the question becomes, why did he do that? Um, and he kind of you know, said, look, it was out of principle. Uh, but the question is, why did he not hold the vote? Well, one of the things that happens when he leaves uh, the Speaker of the House is he joins a lobbying firm in Washington, D.C., Uh, gets paid a million dollars plus a year to be a quote unquote advisor to that firm. That firm, I think since the 1980s, has represented the Chinese government, the Chinese embassy uh, as a lobbyist before the U.S. Congress. Um, And again, I don't think that is a coincidence. Uh, I think it relates to the fact that. He was a powerful political figure who knows a lot of people on Capitol Hill, who also did a massive favor for the Chinese government, uh, and he is now, in effect, being rewarded uh, for the behavior uh, that he did, which um, I don't think was in the interest of our country, and certainly did not respect the system that we have. The Senate votes on something, bipartisan support, at least have a vote in the House. He says we're not even going to have a vote.
1: That is one of those rules in Congress that drives me crazy when, you know, the the <laughs> Senate leader or the Senate majority leader or the, the Speaker of the House can just say, you know, we're going to table that. We, we're we not going to get to that. Sorry about that. I, I, it, that one drives me crazy. Uh, but it is in the rules. Um, so here we had Dianne Feinstein, a major player mm-hmm. on the Democrat side, and John Boehner, a Speaker of the House, a Republican. And so we see this, as you've detailed, on both sides of the aisle. And China is so wealth or so willing to spend so much of their money on this kind of thing, on the lobbying efforts, on on wooing these people. Um, And so it's it's fascinating to me. When we come back, what I want to get into is, you know, Donald Trump ran a a good plank of his campaign platform was, you know, let's hold China's feet to the fire, let's make them compete, uh, and let's and he always talked about that currency. So we'll get into that and to sort of where we are right now, because I think we're in even scarier waters at the moment. Peter Schweitzer, our guest, right after this. Well, if you're tired of looking tired, I've got a secret to share with you, and it is GenuCell. G-E-N-U-C-E-L. Genucel Skin Care is an antioxidant-based skincare, and it's made and manufactured right here in the United States. It is formulated by a pharmacist with quality ingredients that not only help to diminish fine lines and wrinkles, but prevent new ones from starting. And one of my favorites is their deep firming serum with stem cell technology. I put it on right after I cleanse my face and my skin feels brighter, firmer, just kind of plump and fresh. It's it's really incredible. So, I want to share this secret with you, and I want to share with you an opportunity to save over 70% off Geniusel products right now. Their most popular package. Just in time for the warm spring weather, which we're now getting into summer, it features Genucel's Ultra Retinol that contains a powerful retinol alternative safe on your skin in the summer months and Genucel's Dark Spot Corrector to reduce the appearance of dark marks and sunspots from long summer days outside. Plus you'll still get Genucel's classic under eye bags therapy for those annoying under eye bags and puffiness. And with its immediate effects, see results in as little as 12 hours guaranteed or your money back. Don't wait. Visit genucel.com slash Michelle. Again, it's G E N U C E L dot com slash Michelle to save over 70% off their most popular package. Plus every order subscription includes a luxury gift box with two free springtime essentials. That's two free gifts plus free concierge shipping for a limited time. Go to genucel.com slash Michelle. Don't forget there's one L in Michelle. So G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E. Don't wait. So let's talk a little bit about Trump, who it's kind of funny, when he began running or shortly after he ran, I, I took my kids to New York and we went to Trump Tower only because of its historic value in in you know the sequence of American politics and looked at the products that they were selling in the gift shop, and nine out of ten of them were made in China, so you know he took advantage of mm-hmm. the the manipulated currency there, but he also pointed out very frequently how imbalance the trade, uh, you know, the trade was with China. Is 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 any part of that the fact that he was willing to go a little bit harder on Beijing than than most was any part of that something that the establishment had had a problem with with Donald Trump?
2: Yeah, I think it's I think it's a huge part of the opposition uh, that he gets, particularly from corporate America, Um, you know, and set aside the you know various debates people have about Trump, just look at it from the bottom line standpoint of what his position was. He became president of the United States January two thousand and seventeen and he talked about China and took policy actions that nobody else had taken uh, so on the issue of tar- uh, tariffs on the issues of uh, currency manipulation, he talked openly about the fact that China is involved in the fentanyl trade which The Biden administration never mentions China in the context of fentanyl. This was a radical change in in what had been the consensus, I would argue the failed consensus, of the previous administration, which was you engage with China, you trade with China, they'll become more like us, they'll become less hostile. Well, guess what? The actual opposite happened under President Xi. They'd become more aggressive. So Trump changed that dynamic. And so what did China do when they saw what Trump was doing? Uh, They didn't send their diplomats uh, to the United States to protest. They sent their diplomats to Wall Street. The New York Times and others reported on this. They went to Wall Street, and they got Wall Street to lobby Donald Trump. And Wall Street was more than willing to lobby Donald Trump because Wall Street has made a ton of money in China. Now, they're invested in companies that enhance the Chinese military, that suppress the Uyghurs. There's all kinds of Uh, ethical and moral questions about what they're doing. But bottom line is they made a lot of money. So corporate America, huge resistance to Trump's posture on China. You even see that today in the world of tech, uh, in the world of finance, uh, in the world of manufacturing, because he has kind of upended the apple cart uh, as it regards to what our relationship should be with China. And I think that's a good thing. And we're now starting to see some people on both sides of the aisle Uh, mimic the positions that he took. And I think that's a very healthy thing, especially the fact that it's now both sides starting to do it.
1: Both sides. But can we include the Biden administration, the White (laughs) House in this? It seems to me that Joe Biden has always carried water for Beijing. And I I don't know how much this has to do with business, but I know, you know. So uh, what have you found there?
2: Yeah. I mean, no, uh, Biden has been terrible on China. Um, and I think he's gotten worse on China. And, and in my view, that is because of the financial relationship that exists between, uh, people in China and the Biden family. And, and, you know, the bottom line is if you go through the Hunter Biden laptop, you look at the corporate records in China, what we know is that the Bidens took in some $31 million, uh, from four businessmen in China. Um, And they really provided no service in return for that money. There's no consulting agreement. There's no advice. They brought no capital to business deals. So the question becomes, what did those businessmen get for the $31 million? Assuming they're not just charitable guys who are handing out money to American politicians. And when you look at who those four men are, and I kind of highlight this in the book, if you look at who those four men are, every single one of them, Michelle, has ties to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence. And that's that's not just me saying that. That's looking at Hong Kong big business records. They're in the footnotes. So one of them, for example, arranges for Hunter Biden to join the board and get an equity stake in a, a private equity company funded by the Chinese government called BHR. Hunter has no background in any of this. But that's basically a $20 million payday. The man that arranged that at the same time he arranged it for Hunter Biden was also business partners with the vice minister for state security, which is their spy apparatus in China. You look at the other three who who arranged other deals or transferred money to Hunter Biden. Same thing. So the question is, is this a coincidence? Are these guys engaged in charitable behaviors? What is the mm-hmm. flow of this money? And my belief is belief is it creates a. Definitely a conflict of interest. But even more than that, you have to start having questions about are elements of the first family or the first family somehow compromised by this flow of money from these Chinese entities. And I think if you go back to the Cold War when we were fighting the Soviets, if the Reagan family or the Carter family had taken $30 million from Russian businessmen linked to the KGB, uh, people would be going apoplectic. And I think we should be doing that right now with regards to the Biden's.
1: And why aren't we? Is this again just a a, a, is it as simple as the mainstream media not wanting to reveal this? Why? Why why is this happening?
2: I think it's a combination of things. I think, number one, the media uh, decided and they basically wrote this in in, uh, 2017 in The New York Times on the front page. Uh, Their view is that Donald Trump represents, in their words, quote unquote, an existential threat to democracy and that anything they do to aid him which includes exposing his opponents, people like Joe Biden, they are somehow participating in the destruction of democracy. So they have made a concerted effort that they're not going to simply report the facts, uh, that they are going to uh, skew what people see based on information. Um, And I've done numerous stories with the New York Times investigative team over the years up until 2016, when Donald Trump became president after that fact, they basically are not interested in anything that involves anybody like the Biden family. Um, so I think that's part of it. Uh, I think the other part of it has been the social media suppression of this story. They, they yeah. suppressed when The New York Post came in 2020. There have been polls conducted afterwards that demonstrate that if Biden voters had known about this, um, it might potentially have changed the outcome of the election. We don't ultimately know uh my view is you know trump improprieties biden improprieties put them all out there let the american people decide that is Thank clearly you. not what the media is doing
1: yeah it's it's amazing they see t- trump as an existential threat to democracy but if if everything in what you're what you've researched all of this money going to the biden family from i think our most you know you could say russia's the most hostile whatever I, china certainly has more money than russia yes, does yes. china is is hell bent on owning the world uh and and our president and his family has benefited from their government or their in, intelligence uh folks That's not a threat to democracy. (laughs) No, I mean, I I don't understand. I I just, it's, it's almost they're they're choosing. You know, there are two devils in front of them, and they're choosing the lesser of two evils or something. And it's, I, I don't see how you can say that's the lesser of two evils I, I i don't know what do you think
2: no i i think you're right i think you're right that that you know russia is a declining power it's yes. it's uh, demographically financially it is a declining power china's an ascendant power there're much yes. more i'm not saying russia is not a threat but china's a much bigger more robust threat And you're exactly right. I mean, again, if we had the Trump family getting $31 million from these Chinese businessmen, they would be all over it. They would be reporting it, as they should. I'd be right there with them. Uh, But the fact is, is that they're not. So, you know, I would just ask people in the mainstream media to see, you know, maybe they are the existential threat to democracy because they're choosing (laughs) to put their thumb on the scale uh, in a way that we shouldn't do it. Again, my view has always been, And some of the reporting is going to be good. Some of it's not so good. Put all the Trump stuff out there. Put all the Biden stuff out there and let the American people decide. That's the way this should be done.
1: There's no question about that. And this unequal treatment of these two people is is ridiculous in my eyes because of everything you've just detailed. Today, here we sit with uh, Russia having invaded Ukraine. And the strong argument is that we cannot let Russia get away with this because if they do, that's the signal to China that they can get away with invading Taiwan, which is sort of the equivalent, um, uh, I guess, invasion. And it would be... Uh, It would have so many ramifications economically all over the world. I don't even think people have a clue what it would mean if China invaded Taiwan. Do you see those two things as being related?
2: I do, uh, in, in a number of ways. Um, yes, I do. Um, and I certainly, uh, support the Ukrainian people. They're the victims here. Um, you know, look, the, the Ukrainian government, uh, they, they want to make Zelensky and his government sort of the, you know, Thomas Jefferson and the, the founding fathers. <laughs> they're not, yeah. they're, they're corrupt. There's a lot of problems there, but still, this is about the Ukrainian people and their future. And we need to be supporting that. Um, and look, there is a reason I think why while russia went into crimea under obama in 2014 then skipped an administration the trump yes. administration and then decided okay now biden's in now we're going to invade a second time i think those events are that weakness is something uh, that tempts people to take aggressive action i think we have to be very concerned about that um as it regards china and taiwan i think my Instinct is that they're going. China's going to wait to see what happens in the January 2024 Taiwan elections. If the KMT comes to power, which is pro Beijing, uh, they'll be happier and they may not need to invade. Uh, if the KMT doesn't win, uh, then I think all bets are off, and we have to, God forbid, uh, consider the fact that they may actually move into Taiwan.
1: It's it's a t- it's a terrifying notion on so many. Levels and right now you have Macron from France going to China and basically saying the United States shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be following their lead on this we shouldn't side with them in this in this I guess uh, this disagreement or however you want to describe it I I, I I'm trying to stay away from hyperbole Peter <laughs> right. I'm trying to be really responsible no, we here are, yeah uh, but Macron what he said was like I I couldn't believe it now you've also got Uh, Brazil cozying up with China. You've got Russia and China uh, talking and and China sort of trying to be a peace broker there. The, The whole situation right now seems so tenuous and so frightening. And it does seem to be a byproduct of a very weak White House administration here in the United States. I don't think there is any doubt about it while we've got this all going on. We've got a president over in Ireland and he can barely put a sentence together. So what are the ne- how important are the next six, eight, 10 months?
2: They're hugely important. And, and I think uh, you, you nailed it, uh, Michelle, that, um, you know, power politics abhors a vacuum, Uh, and the United States has been the convening power on the global stage and that doesn't mean we have to get involved in every war and every conflict I'm not certainly in favor of that but you have to have a certain posture uh, and there has to be a certain respect given to you based on the fact that you are the convening authority and I think there's a lot of questions about whether the United States remains in that role Uh, the Biden administration has been weak you look at the withdrawal from Afghanistan Uh, you look at the retreat in other areas and I think a lot of uh, countries like Brazil, uh, for example, they've got a new left wing government there, but they're generally pragmatic on these things. And they're probably putting their finger in the wind and saying, mm, looks like the the breeze is blowing from uh, China stronger than the breeze from the United States. The Saudis uh, are making the same kind of calculation. And it's very tempting for people, I think, to believe well, that's all foreign policy stuff. It's not going to affect my life. If we, uh. if we live in a world where China is the convening global authority, life in America changes dramatically. Uh, Our economy, uh, our freedom, our ability to trade or not trade with other powers, it it changes immensely. Um, So we need to be engaged. We need to be robust. We need to be forceful. Uh, And I have not seen that, not only from this president, but from this vice president, from Tony Blinken, the secretary of state. Uh, It has essentially been weakness through and through. And the world senses that, smells it, and they're reacting accordingly
1: and I've heard people say that it's probably going to have to wait for another election cycle. And that kind of is terrifying because (laughs) it's hard to know what this election cycle is really going to look like. Mm. Joe Biden has not declared he's hinted strongly. Most people believe he will run again. It's hard to even imagine that he's, he's not competent now. He's not, I don't believe he's mentally competent um, and let alone maybe physically competent. Uh, I'm not, I'm not hugely in favor of Donald Trump. That is for sure. I would like some new faces on the scene and some courageous faces. But to think that, particularly as you mentioned, Wall Street and corporate America loves the deals they get with China. Yeah. And you go to any store, whether it's Target or Walmart or where the Nike store, and you see how much is manufactured there. And there is so much going... (sighs) There is so much wrongdoing in China. So many human rights abuses. The Uyghurs you mentioned so much. And yet we remain so entangled. Where is there ever going to be patriotism again to say, this isn't good for America. We need to disentangle. We need to, we need to move our factories. We need to find another way. Do you see that anywhere in the future? I,
2: I see glimmers of it. I see people talking about it again. I see people on both sides in Washington. I see certain people uh, in Silicon Valley uh, and in Wall Street talking about it. But they are clearly a minority. And I think, you know, part of the problem is you touched on it earlier where China thinks long term for a lot of corporate America. It's about that quarterly report. It's about that quarterly report and they don't want to have their costs go up and have the quarterly report affected because that may affect their job. It may affect their compensation. So part of it is the kind of American system of capitalism. But the other part of it is, you know, corporate leaders. You look back at Jack Welch, who used to run General Electric in the 1980s. I mean, this was a bold guy committed to his company, committed to his country, outspoken. So many of these corporate leaders seem to be. Like politicians, you know, they're doing focus groups. They're, they're afraid to say anything. Um, they, they, they will react to criticism, you know, from some left wing political group on the environment or whatever issue. But when it comes to China, they're, they're sort of quaking in their boots. Um, I think what we really need to see is some some corporations step forward and to be rewarded for doing this. It's probably yeah. not going to be companies like Nike who are so dependent upon China and see it as such a big market. But I'm hoping we're going to see some of that in the tech space. You see Apple moving its manufacturing away from China towards Vietnam and other countries, India, for example. That's going to be a somewhat slow process, but I'm encouraged that Tim Cook is actually going in that direction, but he's certainly not in a position where he can be vocal about this. I think it's more of a slow strategy. So I see murmurs of it, but I think we're going to have to see somebody step up on the stage and really make this movement succeed. Um, And there's a lot of risk involved in that. And Unfortunately, we have a lot of leaders who are adverse to taking any kind of risk.
1: No risk no reward. Final yeah. question for you here um before I let you go. The the million dollar, let's call it a billion dollar question here or maybe a 31 million dollar question. <laughs> we, we we have so much evidence regarding the Bidens, regarding Hunter Biden, regarding you know the whole family. In your estimation, how much will they pay a price for what some people are calling criminal activity. I, I, it hasn't, they haven't been, uh, you know, convicted of a crime yet, mm-hmm. but what are the odds?
2: Um, so I always preface by saying I'm not a lawyer myself. Um, but I am actually optimistic that, uh, Hunter Biden will be indicted, um, by this grand jury. Uh, I wrote a book in 2018 called Secret Empires that first exposed kind of their dealings in China. Four months later, a grand jury was convened in Delaware to actually investigate their deals in China. And it's very clear that Hunter Biden failed to pay taxes on millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, from China. So much to the fact that when the grand jury had been convened for two years, Uh, He actually got a lawyer friend to pay the IRS $2 million to cover some of those debts. Um, That's tax evasion. And just because you pay the debts after a federal investigation has been launched is no protection. And if you look at the record in similar cases, that has led to uh, to prison time. Um, So I think he is going to be convicted. Um, He's going to be charged, at least I should say, uh, on uh, that. I think there's a possibility for money laundering. You've got 150 of these suspicious activity reports that Congress is looking at. Uh, Money laundering is certainly a possibility. Um, I think in the larger question of Joe Biden, it's very clear that Joe Biden actually benefited from these deals, that Hunter Biden would collect the money. And then when his dad was vice president, Hunter would pay his father's bills, which is, again, not legal. Uh, I'm not sure that you're going to see criminal action against Joe Biden. But I think the most valuable thing that these congressional committees can do Uh, is bring this stuff forward and present it to people in black and white. They have subpoena power. They can get the banking records. They can compel uh, Hunter Biden and his business associates and James Biden. That's Joe Biden's brother to testify uh, on on what they got the money for and, and who they were meeting with. The biggest thing they can do is put that in front of the American people. Call me naive. I still want to believe that these sorts of things matter to people and it will affect the choices that people make.
1: I I know what you mean when you say call me naive because I feel that way all the time. <laughs> I want to believe that people care about this stuff. It it matters so much and maybe it uh it's going to take something a lot more painful for them to realize that and I hope not. I I hope not, but um my goodness, Peter Schweitzer, what a great opportunity to talk to you. I hope we can do it again cuz you are a font You're just a wealth of information, and it's fascinating to me. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Michelle. I really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, me too. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Don't don't forget. Don't remember. Don't forget. Remember this, and don't forget. (laughs) Be brave and do good. And thanks for listening to Sideline Sanity.